Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Hey, Mom. I'm honored to introduce these guys. I love the work they're doing. Their names are John W. James and Russell Friedman, and we're going to talk to them today about moving beyond death. John W. James and Russell Friedman have been working with grievers for more than 30 years. They have served as consultants to thousands of bereavement professionals and provide grief recovery seminars and certification programs throughout the United States and Canada. They are the founders of the Grief Recovery Institute and the authors of the Grief Recovery Handbook, the Action Program for Moving Beyond Death, Divorce, and Other Losses. Welcome to the show, John and Russell. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Well, I'm thinking there are four of us on, so when you guys talk, if I don't say your name, can you say, if you come in with some comment, just say, this is Russell or this is John. Usually okay. works out pretty well. No problem. no problem. Well, John, I thought we might uh, start out with you because uh, I noticed in your bio that uh, you have not only lost a brother, but also uh, lost a, uh, a baby. Mm. Well, that's true. Uh, you know, I'm often asked, uh, you know, how did I get involved in grief recovery, and uh, no one wakes up one morning, you know, and makes an intellectual decision. Oh, I think I'll get involved with grief. Right. Uh, I had a son die in 1977, mm-hmm. and I, th- I think within about two days, it finally dawned on me that although there should be an enormous number of people who are trained to help grieving people, there weren't any, mm-hmm. uh, which you know kind of led to an investigation. Uh, to kind of really save my own life. And then I was uh, very fortunate to find a process that uh, worked for me. And then, much to my surprise, over the years I have found that it you know, works for everyone uh, in multiple languages all over the earth. Wow. So I'm very happy about that. We're going to be interested in hearing about that. And then, Russell, you've, you haven't had uh, the death of a child, per se, or a sibling, but you've had divorce, uh, financial things, uh and uh, those are certainly the losses, right? Yes, and of course, uh, since uh, since I got here, each both of my parents have died, and other people who are important mm-hmm. to me, relatives yeah. and friends. So, but I did come. I arrived here some 22 years ago on the heels of a, my second divorce and a bankruptcy for a half a million dollars. The mm-hmm. combination of which literally brought me to my knees. I mean, I was beyond devastated and. To, you know, I know the word hope is real important to what you do and to what we do, and we I think we'll talk about it, but I was as close to hopeless as I have ever been and perhaps was hopeless because, kind of like John, only differently, I didn't know where to turn to get help, and I didn't know what to do. So I was had all these normal and natural reactions to the painful loss of a, a second loss of a spouse, a death, you know, of a divorce, and a bankruptcy, which made me feel like the failure of the universe. And people would say uh, allegedly helpful things like, don't feel bad. Did you know that Walt Disney went bankrupt seven times before he made it? And, you know, I didn't know it. I didn't care. It didn't help me. Anytime someone told me to feel not to feel bad, I went, yeah. why not? My heart's broken. I mean, I didn't even have that language yet. I knew that. I knew that something was wrong with people telling me not to feel bad when I did. It's like, aren't you listening? Doesn't this make sense to you? So, yeah, and it really minimizes our losses when what we need initially is acknowledgement and validation that what you're going through is really hard. 
Not only that, but it's normal and natural. The combination mm-hmm. of difficult, painful, isolating, whatever, and normal and natural, just that language alone. I mean, I've yeah. talked to 100,000 grieving people, and they come away with hope because, A, I listen to them. I acknowledge, oh, my gosh, how painful, how devastating, how diabolical for you. And then with that alone, and then I say, gosh, how normal and natural to have your universe upside down after a loss like that. And they go, really? I go, Mm -hmm. yeah. (laughs) And that alone brings them into a conversation where recovery becomes a possibility. Until then, they don't even think recovery is possible. So so here I am. I'm this uh, lady who um, I got a call yesterday from this friend from um, Arizona who said, how can I help my friend, her uh, 14-year-old uh, stepson died yesterday, and her husband, you know, she's she's in shock, but also she's, you know, amazed and surprised that her husband is so totally, you know, in shock. It, it's hard for, for people to see that. Um, what do you suggest right off the, the top of your head, John? Why don't you give us... Well, the, you know, the just like you were talking uh, about the website uh, that you're redoing, you know, we could spend an hour on just this story. Um, of the 140 most common things that are going to be said to this family, 122 of them will be intellectual and therefore will not help. And the most important issue to address is that the number one problem for grieving people is isolation. Mm. And as people say intellectual things, and the griever is dealing with an emotional experience, they will tend to isolate and isolate. And if I understand it correctly, your friend, uh, the one the woman called and said, what can I do for my friend? Right. And the first thing I would say is go to the nearest library or go to the bookstore and get the Grief Recovery Handbook and read the first four chapters of it very quickly. Uh, we individuals are never going to know how another person feels. And so the first thing that we ought to be doing is saying, instead of, I know how you feel, we should be saying, I cannot imagine how this is feeling. Would you be willing to tell me? Right. So that they can talk and then not judge them. Because as Russell points out, uh, grief is normal and natural. But we, sadly, live in a society that tries to teach everyone that what is normal and natural is somehow abnormal and unnatural. It's very sad. And that gets into some of those myths. That, Russell, before we go to break, give us a couple of those myths that make us not... Absolutely. There are six that we highlight, although the truth is there are probably more and variations on them. The first one we mention in our books, our literature, our talks, and even here, or right here, is one that little kids get right away, a little girl goes to preschool, comes home with tears in her eyes, the mommy or daddy says, what happened? Which is a good question. And the little girl tells the truth to the adults she trusts. And she says, with tears in her eyes, other little girls were mean to me. To which point the parent makes a colossal error and says, quote, don't feel bad. Here, have a cookie. You'll feel better. Now, the question is, does the cookie make the child feel better or does the ch- child feel different? And the answer is different, not better. But look at the opening line. Don't feel bad. 
Why not? If you, if Gloria, if you called me up and said you're having a great day, would I go, uh, 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 don't feel good? So someone tells us the truth, says they don't feel good, and we tell them they shouldn't feel that way, and they should cover up that feeling with a substance. Then are we surprised when we have 200,000 or more obesity-related deaths in the United States of America every year? We have, huh? One minute, and we get real surprised. <laughs> One minute more, and we get real surprised again and again and again at the alcohol and drug abuse. And yet, our parents—and this is not an attack on parents—taught us to use substances to modify or medicate our feelings. But don't you, feel no, bad. You have a cookie is a bad teaching yeah. done accidentally by loving parents who don't haven't thought it through. Um, Children learn, and they record information, and then they practice the information, and then they get really good at it. And a typical child in North America, before the age of 15, has received over 23,000, that's 23,000 reinforcements that the showing of sad feelings is somehow inappropriate. Mm. And especially and, boys, too, don't you think? Well, it's it's interesting there's uh, there's no difference between the emotional reaction between men and women. What there is is a physiological difference in the size and location of tear ducts. And so mm-hmm. women have the capacity to cry five times more often than men. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they have any more emotional turmoil going on. It's mm-hmm. just that it is easier to see it. Mm-hmm. And, 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 I, and I noticed on your website that you have an article, which I'm sure people would love to read, called I'm Fine and Other Lies. <laughs> yeah. The, I love uh, it. The, when people go to our website, which is grief.net, up at the very top in the little navigation bar, there's a thing that says helpful articles. And we keep an enormous number of articles up there all the time about every conceivable loss you can think of. And they're free, and people can read them, they can download them, they can print them. We don't, you know, I mean, we're trying to change the educational model uh, in the world for, you know, people's knowledge about grief. Because Mm -hmm. grief is normal, and grief is predictable. I mean, we teach people all about how to acquire things, and we teach them nothing whatsoever about what to do when we lose them. Well, you know, I want to uh, just for this uh, gal who um, emailed me and said, what can I do for my friend, can one of you talk a little bit about partnering, why she'd want to get this book? Because I think she'd want to get it so she could read about partnering because that's kind of what her friend is asking her for. Yes, this is Russell. In an ideal world, when people take the actions that are outlined in the Grief Recovery Handbook, they would do it in partnership with another human being. One of the reasons is that we will be propelled, and interestingly enough, to be differently honest going outwards than when we go inwards. If we just look at ourselves through our own eyes, through our own filter of information, we don't always get to the truth. We could be honest without being accurate. I think the best metaphor is if you remember the first time you ever heard your own voice on a tape recorder. It never sounds like you, and even to this day, I don't sound like me, and I've been on the radio thousands of times. I recognize it, but it's not me. By the same token, if you ask me to tell you about me, I, it's distorted by my perception of me, yet when we do grief recovery, we're talking about people's relationships with others, and it gets it out of the filter. The other thing is a tremendous need to be heard by a living witness. Witnessing is not necessarily a religious concept, but it has that too. In order to be 
the person, what you have said to have meaning and value. It is really important for another living human being to hear it. Why that's true, we can't tell you scientifically. We just know it is true. So the partnership aspect of grief recovery is really, really powerful and helpful. And she called her best friend because she wanted a witness. Absolutely. I love it. You know, I think that is so true. You want people to witness it. They don't even have to say anything. No, and think you about want this. To say if it. anything happens, either good or bad, the first thing you do is pick up the phone or go to their house and say, guess what? Whether it's happy or sad, you want to tell someone. And that's the antidote at many levels to isolation. The problem is that the people being told about grief try to get away from the subject instead of moving toward and say, wow, please tell me about it. I can't imagine, like John said, I can't imagine what this is like for you, which is the most helpful comment in the universe. You know, what really aggravates me is when I see people who've lost a child interviewed on television, and the interviewer will say, oh, I can't imagine what I'd do if this happened to me. Right, <laughs> right away, could, they have to, they have go, to make I it could there. Ne- I could never survive this. I could never deal with this. And yep. it's, well, the number one, this is John, the number one complaint that grievers report to us is, I didn't feel heard. Right. Mm-hmm. And those are just typical examples of how, because we treat you know grief as an abnormal event, people will tend to internalize or personalize it to themselves. And now we're talking about the wrong issue. We're talking about the wrong person. Or... The other thing that people who want to help do uh, is they use the things they're familiar with in an unfamiliar situation. And everyone is very familiar with logic, but we're dealing with an emotional event. So people will say things like, oh, don't feel bad, at least his suffering is over. Right. Which is 100% true for the person who died, but it is completely untrue for the griever. Their suffering has just begun, and and we continually do these kinds of things. And again, it's it's not that people are insensitive; it is simply lack of knowledge. Well, the the girl who called me yesterday said, "I I don't know what to do." She really she was great because she said to me, "What's your experience?" <laughs> and oh, I said, <laughs> "And I said, well, my son was killed in an automobile accident 26 years ago." And she said, "How old was he?" And this is just a friend. I said he was 17. And uh, she said, oh, "What? What about it?" And I said, "It's hell. It's hard. It's suffering. It, it, you know, you can hear her." And I gave her a couple of ideas, but but I thought it was so great. She's going to be a great partner to this yes. friend because yeah. she is curious yes, about the experience. Well. But Heidi, I wanted to uh, bring something up from their book. It's a great book, by the way, the Grief Recovery mm-hmm. Handbook. It's got wonderful ideas for you. Very concrete things that you can do, how you can move through your grief. But, Heidi, they've got something in here I know is going to be a flash for you, and that is don't compare and minimize. Yeah, Heidi talks about that with the 9-11 families, right, Heidi? Uh, don't, you mean don't compare others' loss? Yeah, right. with yours. Who had the worst loss? Uh, absolutely. It happens, it happens a lot. I mean, as a, as a brief sibling, it happens because you know that the worst loss that can ever happen on the face of the earth is the death of a child. So who am I to even think about my brother's death when my parents have been through so much? I mean, that's kind of the this, this stuff out there. And, you know, we all know that the worst loss that can ever happen is the one that's happening to you right now. Exactly. The one that's left you on the ground wondering how you're going to survive and find hope again. And 
The 9-11 families are another. You know, they all had the same kind of loss on the same day, but it was a different relationship. Exactly. So they often get into the comparison of whose loss is actually worse. And let, let me jump in. This is Russell. We can put a piece of language on here that really hopefully people hear. All loss is experienced at 100%. There are no exceptions to that. That is a universal truth. And that 100% represents a unique relationship. Every relationship that has ever happened on planet Earth is unique. There are no exceptions. Now, you can hear John and I talking some fairly strong absolutes, but we've been doing this a long time, and we have seen all the danger spots. The biggest danger to a griever other than isolation is comparison. Now, we've seen people try to compare death and divorce. They don't compare. I've seen people's lives destroyed by divorce and other people's lives destroyed by death. And isn't a divorce a death of a relationship and the death of the hopes, dreams, and expectations? And the Absolutely. issue isn't my relationship to my spouse from whom I'm divorced compared to your relationship to your spouse who died. My relationship to my broken heart that is devastated is the issue, and it's not comparable to anyone, anything, anytime. And the thing John said earlier is the crucial line. If anyone ever says, I know how you feel, they are incorrect because of the uniqueness of all relationships. And so the truth is you never know how someone else feels, even if they've had a parallel experience. The parallel stops at the intellectual truth. We both had a spouse die. We both had a child die. We both had a divorce. And it has no meaning beyond that. There is a connection, but it's a limited one. The real issue is my broken connection or damaged one by the death of my spouse or the divorce of my spouse. So we have to bring it back to the grieving person, not to the generality about loss. I love that. I love that. My relationship to my broken heart. That makes so much sense. Perfect. Well, and then add to that, not only do we kind of train people to compare losses in order to minimize feelings, but we even com- teach them to compare their own losses. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, when I was very fortunate as a child in that I had two grandfathers that were living Now, one of them lived clear on the other side of the country, and I talked to him twice a year on the phone, and he sent me little presents for my birthday and Christmas. When he died, I experienced grief at 100% of what that unique relationship could create. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I had another grandfather who lived three doors down the street, and I saw him every day, and he taught me how to play ball and so forth. Now, when he died... I experienced grief at 100% of what that unique relationship could create, and the one has nothing whatsoever to do with the other. And it's very important for people to understand that. There is no half grief, <laughs> okay? But, but don't you think that it can be a little easier if you're trained in the grieving process? If I got your book, I think my second grief, might I might be able to ease it with understanding of, about what's going on. Well, if you really got into the book and, and got a hold of the categories of investigation to identify unfinished business and so forth, you would be so much smarter in your living relationships that you would have far less unresolved grief following every loss. I like Heidi uh, in their book. I really like this because Heidi and I don't like uh, acceptance or completion or whatever. <laughs> but your completion isn't what we think of as completion. Your completion isn't cutting it off or anything. It's it's working through the issues that you had, completing every you know each issue that was a problem, and and being able to retain the sweet things. In a simple sentence, grief recovery is the 
series of actions to discover and complete everything that was left emotionally unfinished yeah. at the time of a death, a divorce, or any of the loss, period. I, I love that. Unfinished love that. business, Heidi. Mm-hmm. It's great. Yeah. It's a, really a great way to look at it because, you know, this idea that we, you know, we should cut off. Heidi and I have done some, uh, written an article on continuing bonds, and we have a great relationship with Scott, who died mm-hmm. 26 years ago, mm-hmm. because we remember the who he was. Yeah, absolutely. We've got this lady who the the death has just happened, and what what do I do before I can even get myself off the floor to go to the store or, or think about anything? But before we do that, um, I just wanted to uh, talk a little bit about your workshops that you guys do. You do them all over the United States, right? Well, all over the world. Yeah, we have an office here in the U.S. And, and where are you located? We're in Los Angeles. Oh, you are? Okay, California. And, uh, we yeah. also have an office in Toronto and an office in Stockholm. And before long, we'll have an office in London, and then it's, I think, the next one up is Mexico City, and and so the Grief Recovery Handbook is translated into a whole bunch of languages. Uh, You're actually holding the 20th anniversary edition. Wow. Uh, So it is a very successful book because the information in it works. And it's also very practical, and it's got step. It's got things that you can actually do. Yes, and that is the key to everything. One of the pieces of misinformation is that grief just takes time. But the truth of the matter is, is that if you rely only on time, nothing will happen. Mm-hmm. So what we want people to understand is that, yes, there is a certain amount of time necessary for recovery, but more important is what action am I taking within time? Uh, the the example we use in our other book, When Children Grieve, is, you know, if you walked out of the studio today and found the left front tire of your car flat, you would not sit down on the curb and just wait for air to get back in the tire. <laughs> you would take action within time. And that is the key to grief recovery. The we're, And I really want to say this other thing real fast. We're, we're dealing with the death of a child... The society seems to be over-focused on things like how old was he or how old was she, that kind of thing. And they're missing the first nine months of the emotional relationship between the mother and the child. Mm -hmm. From the moment a woman knows she's pregnant, an emotional relationship begins. Now, where the dads are concerned, and I hate to tell these stories and because the dads have been lying for a long time. Uh, <laughs> the woman says, oh, I'm pregnant. Gee, don't you feel great about it? And the man says, yes, but it isn't real. When it becomes real is the first time he actually feels the baby move, and then the emotional relationship begins there. And so if we focus on things like, oh, how long did he live, uh, and, and it's only four years, let's say. Or maybe four minutes. Or maybe three days, as in the case of my son. What we're missing is the hopes and the dreams and the expectations, which, which are completely emotional content that the parents had about what kind of a parent they were going to be and how they were going to love this child and so on and so forth. And that is all 100% real and needs to be identified and addressed. And we're always saying this when we do shows on miscarriages, because I've had two miscarriages, and you're grieving, like you're making so many good points, you're grieving not only the loss of 
the miscarriage of the infant or the baby, but also the loss of the future that you thought you were going oh, to have. Abs- absolutely, completely, and every bit of that is valid in a society that wants to get off the subject or change the subject as fast as they can because they don't know what to do. And the, the big tragedy uh, on, on, the, on the miscarriage, and this is something John and I have helped thousands of people with, is, is they, they get told, don't feel bad, at least you didn't have a relationship with the baby. And that mm-hmm. is totally false. Or you can have time. another one. Uh, oh, that, yeah, the, yeah, that's the replace the loss myth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the one that, uh, well, first of all, let's start at the beginning. For most people, the first loss they experience in life is loss of trust. They have a loss of trust event or an experience with mom or dad or brother or sister or whatever. But then, for the vast majority of people in North America, the first concrete loss is the death of a pet. Almost 14 million pet deaths every year in the United States alone. And we deal with that by saying, oh, don't feel bad. On Saturday, we'll get you another dog or cat or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And the, the sad part of this is, is you cannot say hello to the new until you first learn how to say goodbye to the old. Yeah, that's, that's lovely. And that's the part that we just don't teach people. I guess I had a great family because we had a pet cemetery behind our house. Perfect. <laughs> now, but watch, watch how this extends. The replace the loss with the pet gets extended in a, a really sad way, which explains at some level our divorce rate. When I was 15 and had my first breakup with my first girlfriend, I was moping around the house for three days. My mother, who loved me, said, quote, don't feel bad, there are plenty of fish in the sea, which was the first time I knew I had been dating a fish. I, I, you know, I thought it was this nice girl named Marsha. But my mother was teaching me, don't feel bad, go get another girlfriend. So I did, and I did, and I did. And each successive relationship lasted less than the one before because I brought everything unfinished from the prior one, including my non-trust of girls in general with young women. And so by the time I was starting, relationship was ending because I knew it was going to get hurt. And so we are surprised we have to 50% divorce rate when everyone is encouraged to, you know, jump out and get another girlfriend right away. But replace the loss starts where John says, with, usually with a pet, even with a hamster, a dog, or whatever. And so it, it's something we have to get corrected as an idea. Relationships are not interchangeable like light bulbs. You can't just turn them on and turn them off. You have to grieve and complete what's unfinished, including the loss of trust, broken heart, hurt, sadness, pain, isolation. You can't just turn that on like a switch. Okay, so here I am. I somehow got on this radio show. So whoever's listening to this must be moving along a little bit. I mean, you could at least turn on your computer. So uh, my question is for you, John. And for you, Russell, too, give me something short, one thing that you think that I can know or do or something that will make it so that I can get through to start on this process. Well, again, depending on the time that we entered the story here, during the first two to three days, what happens around grievers is they're usually surrounded by so much support that they can't even find a place to sit down in their own house. But on the morning of the fourth day, the rest of the world goes back to work. Mm-hmm. And the griever is left with the feelings of, oh, my God, don't they understand? And the other thing that's enormously important, uh, we get hundreds and hundreds of phone calls in here every week and you know, thousands and thousands of hits on the website. And one of the first things that people need to know 
is that the character trait that is most common to the experience of grieving is a reduced ability to concentrate. And so people will call and they'll say, gee, you know, I was standing in the bedroom and I had this great idea, and then three minutes later I'm standing in the kitchen and can't remember why I went there. Am I losing my mind? (laughs) And the answer is no. You're experiencing emotional shock. Uh, You have just had a trauma, emotional trauma, that is every bit as bad as if you were in a car accident. And people really need to be gentle with themselves And they need to understand that whatever it is they're feeling is normal and natural for them and not to let other people talk them into time frames. uh, One of the other myths that's enormously important is the myth about be strong for others. Uh, I remember when my grandfather died, all the relatives said, oh, John, you have to be strong for your mother. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, they're telling my mother, oh, you have to be strong for the children. And so we. And really, you have to be strong for me because I don't want to watch you grieve. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. We're all, and we were all so strong. (laughs) (laughs) So the pain went on for months longer than it needed to go on. Let me let me jump in and give you the antidote for everybody to hear. We give a new choice. You can be strong or you can be human. Pick Mm. one. Strong or human. Because being strong implies or means covering up feelings, not showing them. At a time when it's most crucial to be open and honest and to be heard. Remember John said grievers don't feel heard. Well, if you, if you're strong, you're implying that they should be strong too. You're showing a face that doesn't have feelings. It's perfectly okay in support of grievers to have your own feelings. They may or may not be about the person who died, but you have your own backlog of feelings about people who have been important in your life. So you can be a human listener, even if it evokes some of your own stuff. Don't be inhuman while trying to be strong. That's a big piece of of guidance. When people do that, everyone feels more connected. And grieving people tend to feel disconnected. So this better idea works more efficiently for the, the thing we need most at a crucial time. And I would suggest that you write down the Grief Recovery Handbook and get it because it will start you off on a journey that is fascinating, the idea of partnering with someone, and it gives home, little homework assignments, you know, that you'll do together. I don't want to scare you. It's not, It's actually know. very easy. The hardest part about what we do is that it's too easy. <laughs> as long as you don't complicate it, it works. Yeah, I, I like this idea of partnering with another person. I mean, you. I think you say you can do it alone, but, but partnering is a yeah. great thing to and do. Let, let me add something for clarity. Partnering doesn't mean finding someone who had the same kind of loss with you. Anyone can work in partnership with someone who's... And the truth is you want to be a partner with someone who's working on their own loss, not yours. Because if you have a mother-daughter come because the husband-slash-father died, you've got to be careful they can't be partners because they had different relationships. Let's say the dad was unfaithful to the wife and the, and, and the, and the daughter knows it. Now she can't be honest with the mom. So we want to have... We don't need to have the same person or loss involved. We just need honest people partnering to give each other an ear to allow them a voice. I was thinking you could take this to anybody. You could, Absolutely. You, could, you know, Absolutely. take the book and say, here's, would you do this with me? Absolutely, and that's what okay. we recommend in the book. Any grieving person is a candidate for partnership because they are flailing around in a world that seems to push them away, where they don't feel invited, where they feel they have to act recovered when they're not. So a partnership can be a life-saving thing, not to mention the actions that are life-altering to help get back the will to live. The easiest way to 
the easiest way to find a partner is to just walk around with a copy of the Grief Recovery Handbook <laughs> with the face pointed people out. say, what is that? <laughs> exactly right. I wanted right. you to talk a little bit about their website because my DSL is down, and I know you went on it, and you're just loving all the articles. I, yes, I love the website, and, and uh, you know, John and Russell will chime in here, but it's very comprehensive. I mean, they have a lot of articles with great titles. Um, they have a 12-week grief recovery outreach program. They have, you know, the grief recovery personal workshops. They have, there's just a lot of information for you, and it's it's very accessible. It's in bullet format. You know, you can get a lot of information. How do you access your website, John and Russell? www.grief.net. So it's real easy, grief.net. Once you get on there, there is a banner at the top, the helpful article thing. I know we've been focusing on that because we want people to know. Some people go in, a lot of people do because we get the statistics. They go in and they will spend an hour reading those articles. Uh, and, and the original 12 or 13 articles we wrote years ago kind of have a sequence to them. They, they kind of follow. They were written one month after the other, so they have a thing. Then there's a whole host of articles that were written that have more of a, uh, not fun, but more informative rather than educational. They have a little, uh, and some of them are poignant, like my one of my favorites has the title, quote, you seem like a nice young lady, what's your name? And if you imagine what that is, that's mother talking to her daughter, the mother with Alzheimer's, because that's what, what the people hear. There's wow, and I mean, topics that you can't even believe on there that are related to this subject, killer cliches about loss. And one of my favorites is, watch this, and everyone listening, I suspect a lot will be able to relate to this. Am I paranoid, or are people really avoiding me? That's a, it's funny, you know, but it's poignant was, because yeah. grieving people realize they're in the ball, and they realize people know their son died or their wife died, and they don't come up to them. Or if they get caught talking to them, they change the subject. Right. And it's a fascinating article. By the way, I want to do one more myth quickly, and we can get back to wherever you want to go. One of the most profound myths that affects grieving people is to be done a little fun here. I'm going to ask a question and ask the two of you to say out the last word of a sentence, okay? okay. A laugh and the whole world laughs with you. Cry and you cry. Alone. Alone. By, by you were both brainwashed, and so was everyone listening. <laughs> now, that is not true. What is true is when you experience something happy or sad, the first thing you do naturally is tell someone. The idea of grieving alone is a learned lie. It is natural to communicate all your feelings in the moment you have them. Every, a baby does that without having to be taught. We take that away. So the isolation that we talk about for grievers is more learned and observed than natural. And we want to get people back to natural, which is to communicate their feelings in the moment they have them, to help empty out the pot, not bury the feelings, not not feel bad when you feel bad, but tell the truth about yourself and have a safe audience. If we all get retrained that way, we become better. Better in the same questions that you've been getting. How do I help my friend? Well, one of the ways is, is not to run away from the topic. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I want to say that when you just, Russell just did what I said I wanted to do after break, which was we are looking at the first homework assignment that you would have with your partner and the, is dealing with some of the myths, and one of the myths, number three, is that we grieve alone and just give it time, replace the loss, don't feel bad. So that's some of the things that you would work on with your partner in that very first session. So I just wanted to give people that piece. But I want to move on to tell people a little bit, and maybe you want to, I don't know which one you, if you want to do it, um, about the seminar, how how can I get in touch with you? What would it be like 
I mean, here I am. I'm very bereaved. I'm very sad. I'm going to go to a three-day seminar. Is it going to be safe? You know, what's it going to look like? Go ahead, John. Well, the one of the many things we do is a three-day grief recovery personal workshop. Mm-hmm. And it is the safest, it is the most emotionally safe experience you're ever going to have. Um, one of the things that we do is in very small, manageable bites, we give people the information that they need in order to take the next action on the road to recovery. So it's like we give them a little piece of information, then we wrap a little blanket of emotional safety around them while they take the first action within time. And then we give them the next little thing. And it's so loving. Um, Can I cry? Pardon? Can I cry? Oh, Buy listen. stock in Kleenex when you can. We, we use more Kleenex per square inch than any organization on the planet. <laughs> uh, and that is normal. Yes. By the way. And, 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 I, what, love, and, and I love and, the description, Mom, of this workshop. Cause it says in a bullet, it's the ultimate journey back to your heart and to the mainstream of your life. Uh, okay, now I want to ask you a question, John. How am I going to get my husband there? <laughs> do you pray? Because <laughs> he's not really grieving. Only I am. <laughs> well, let's let's see. You could you could say to your husband, "Listen, you need to go to that seminar," or you could say, "I am need to go to that seminar. Would you come and support me?" Mm, yeah, that's a great. One. I like that's that. A, that's a what? Uh, because so men, I a lot of the men that we have on our show want to fix things and want to make it better. Want to? I mean, they're grieving, but they have a different way of showing it. And I think. Yeah. Saying, will you come with me? Well, that's one of the that's one of the socialized ideas that men get, and that mm-hmm. is, is if someone shares a feeling with them, they think they have to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, they only need to hear it. No right. one is asking you to take an action to fix someone because someone who is sharing a feeling is not broken and does not require fixing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that that's another one of those little uh, uh, kind of small examples of the misinformation that we have about grief in the, you know in the world today it's also an extension of the fact that men perhaps more than women buy into the idea of being strong for others mm-hmm. so it kind of all dovetails unfortunately it's a negative do- dovetail it doesn't it doesn't help if it was helpful we'd be promoting it can i come without my wife Yes. <laughs> you know, in a manner of speaking, it's often better for couples not to be together because their relationships with people important in their lives, whether it was a child who died, whoever, are unique. And sometimes the line gets smudged, and we want to have – there's also other safeties. You know, most people had a spouse or a, or a boyfriend or a girlfriend before they were married, and the freedom to do grief recovery work is sometimes works better not not being – uh, with your partner, your life partner in in our program. Although, if anyone does come to our personal workshop or our certification training with their spouse, guarantee you, we guarantee you, they're going to be split up. They'll never be working together. We won't allow it because it isn't safe. And remember, John said the first thing is emotional safety, and it's not safe to do that work together with your partner. So if I do come with my partner, you'll you'll figure out how I don't well, have to spill my guts, yes, and he yes, doesn't have and, to do it either. Absolutely, because it wouldn't be safe. But let me right. let me let me throw this in here real quick. We are in effect trying to do less of the personal workshops, and the reason is is that now after 32 years, 
we have an enormous number of grief recovery specialists that we have trained in the certification program. And then they go back to their local communities and they put together grief recovery outreach programs or they work with grieving people one-on-one using the grief recovery process that we invented. So we can, they can find that on your website because we're yeah. going to have to close up the yeah. show now. Yeah. But the other thing I want to say is I've had a child die or I've had a spouse die. Does that mean I can't train in grief recovery if I want to do your training? No, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> we want you. Okay, that's good to know because, you know, there's that old myth out there. If you, you know, you don't want It's too close. No. Uh, no, in it, fact, we believe that your, your experience of recovery, not your experience of loss, but your experience of recovery is what you will be teaching, or completion is what you'll be teaching the people you help. Nobody needs help in experiencing their pain. They need help in the actions of recovery, and that's what you would be guided to do. That's great. Well, have you got one last parting shot, each of no, you, for our it. audience? No, my parting shot is I want to thank you both for having this topic on the air uh, because it is such a hidden issue in our society. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being on. And how about you, uh, Russell, if you guys? Yeah, I want to say as much attention as we paid to the Grief Recovery Handbook, please remember our other book, When Children Grieve, for adults to help children deal with death, divorce, pet loss, moving, and other losses. This powerful book. And almost everybody listening will have children who are affected by the loss that may have affected them either a sibling or a spouse or whatever. So let's not forget the children here because what they learn early dictates what happens the rest of their life with other losses. Oh, Russell, I want you on my marketing team, don't you, Heidi? (laughs) 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 Thank you, guys. I accept. I accept. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on. It's been delightful. Thank you both. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Fabulous. Thanks for giving people an action program for moving beyond loss. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.